Well, good morning. I am not Owen, obviously. Uh, Owen and a man and their family uh, got some well-deserved time off this week and uh, grateful that they had an opportunity to relax and uh, just reflect and just be able to hang out together as a family. And, and then they end up being here on this morning. So it's good to have you guys. Um, uh, but uh, this morning, it, um, it is a privilege uh, to be able to, to share with you from God's word, and, and I hope it's appropriate following uh, the great study that we had uh, looking at the, the, the churches in Revelation, and uh, specifically in regards to last week. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 51, and so if you have your Bibles or a phone or something to access uh, the word, you can go ahead and make your way there. As, as a way of introduction, I, I think... If, if we could consider uh, just the process of getting familiar and, and getting comfortable with a particular place, a person, or a thing, I, I think we could surmise that there are some good things and some bad things to that. I think f- for those of you who maybe who have started a, a new job recently, um, the, the process of getting familiar with that new position uh, with those employees that you're working with, I, I can imagine can be a, a, a good situation. Maybe you're a, a new family here at Emmaus, and you're, you're getting acclimated. You're, you're growing familiar with, with the church, with the people, uh, with the mission, and, and, and those things, getting familiar and comfortable uh, are great and healthy. Uh, but no doubt, getting familiar and comfortable also has its traps. It also has its downsides. Uh, specifically, growing familiar often could possibly breed within us a sense of casualness, maybe even an excessive, comfortable situation that is dangerous. If we could, uh, go back in time to when you first started driving. And for some of us, that might have been last month. And for some of us, you do the math. It could have been a long time ago. But regardless, try to remember those first days behind the wheel. And I, I can only assume that at first, Everyone starts driving with a healthy fear of the car they are driving as well as the cars around them. We use extreme caution. Uh, We probably have both hands on the wheel. Uh, Maybe to a sense we tremble, knowing the power and and what is capable uh, of the car that we are driving as well as those cars around us. Yet over time, maybe we do get familiar with driving. We, we do become comfortable. Maybe we, we get more casual with that situation, and, and we take a hand off the wheel to, to use it to do other things, whether it's a stereo or fiddle with the phone or eyeliner or food, whatever it is that you could possibly do when you're, you're driving in the car. We just get comfortable. We get, we get casual, and, and maybe um, we have forgotten at that moment, we have forgotten what is at stake when we're behind the wheel. And if we can kind of make the transition to our own relationship with God, I, I wonder it's a, if it's possible for us to confess for any of us this morning, including myself, have we grown so familiar with God that we too have forgotten what's at stake with him? Is it, is it possible that a sense of casualness has crept its way into our relationship with him, that we've grown, if it's possible, familiar with things like grace and forgiveness that we begin to tolerate particular sins. Uh, maybe we presume that our church attendance or an occasional reading of God's word somehow is doing God a favor. 
No doubt this is possible and, and probable temptation for all of us that we will encounter from time to time. And, and what we need in this season of life, if we happen to find ourselves there, is a, a shot of God's mercy to wake us up. That is exactly what we need. And, and so this morning what we're going to do is, is look at a familiar person in the Bible, uh, King David, in Psalm 51. And, and it really was God's mercy that woke David up from his sinful wanderings. And you don't have to turn there, but if you're familiar with the story, you can look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and you can see how David avoided going to battle with his men. He uh, then was led to, to lust over Bathsheba, which led to adultery, um, which led to murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And, and the last verse in chapter 11 is very sobering. It says this, it says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And against that backdrop of bad news, the, the next verse you see, which is in the next chapter of verse 1, chapter 12, says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent David to Nathan. And so Nathan the prophet, he was God's means of grace in the life of David, in the midst of a season of casualness, in the midst of a, a season of being excessively comfortable. And, and so it was, it was the, the prophet Nathan whom God used to bring mercy to David's life, to see his sin and to see his need for God's mercy. And so if there was any casualness that existed in his relationship with God previously, in that moment, um, when, when Nathan confronted David, that casualness was gone. It disappeared. David is cut to the heart deeply, becoming so aware of what he had done. And he experiences brokenness and humility. And, and church, we, we should be extremely grateful and thankful that God's grace would allow us to see a man like David wrestle with his sin and wrestle with his need for God's mercy. And so we're going to look at that this morning. So if you would, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Psalm 51 if you haven't done so already. And, and we're just going to look at this whole chapter. So obviously we're we're going to kind of skim the surface and go along, but try to get a helicopter view, so to speak, of this chapter this morning um, as we walk through this together. And so, if we can, let's just start at verse 1. Let's read uh, a couple verses here, and then we'll chat and move on uh, to further verses. It says here in, in chapter 51, verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 51, it says, Have mercy on me, O God. This is David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And again, what we see in this verse, as well as in the verses that will follow, is how you and I are to wrestle with our ongoing battle with sin in this life and how we are to, to wrestle with our need for God's mercy. And so what we see David doing here is boldly recounting the steadfast love and the abundant mercy of God. And the reason why he does that, because he knows, he is convinced that God's mercy and his steadfast love is his only hope. He's cut to the heart with what he has done, and he knows the only hope he has is God's mercy. And so that begs the question, how did David become so convinced that God's mercy 
and God's steadfast love in, in light of his sin was his only hope. Well, let's, let's look at verse three and four. David says this, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David first becomes convinced because he has a keen awareness of his sin. And more importantly, who his sin has offended. And, and like a song on, on repeat, just being played over and over and over and over again, that is David's sin before him. He is being harassed by his sin, by the thought of what he had done. He feels the full weight of 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven that we read earlier. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David feels the full weight of that verse. He is undone, he is a beggar, he is poor in spirit. He recognizes his only hope is God's mercy and he has only one option and that is to beg. And that's what we see here. But there's another reason that has further convinced him to hope in the Lord and knowing that, that his mercy is his only hope. At the latter part of verse four, David says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In sinning against the Lord, uh, David not only has an awareness of that and who he's offended, but David knows he deserves God's judgment. And he also knows it would be fair for God to condemn him forever. That God is just and he is right, and he knows what, he's der- what he deserves. And I'm not sure we have fully grasped the 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 full onslaught of our own depravity, of our own wickedness, until we've come to grips with the fact that we deserve God's judgment. It would be fair for us to be condemned by him, to be in hell right now forever separated from him. That is what we deserve. Every single breath is a sign of God's mercy. How much more is his forgiveness in light of our sin? So, David has a keen awareness of his sin, who he's offended. He knows what he deserves because of his sin. But there's still one more we see in verses five through six. David says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David knows that his sins aren't the only problem. Those sins are but a symptom of a greater problem. The greater problem is his sinfulness. It's not necessarily just a few things that he had done. That is who he is. And and today, this morning, you and I are common on this one thing is we are not a group of people who have just committed a few sins here and there. We are born bent on rebelling against God, born on resisting his way, born rejecting him and what he wants for us. And David knows in this instance, when he's cut to the heart with his sin, he knows that merely changing a behavior or two will not cut it. It's not about, okay, I'm just gonna try harder, I'm gonna try better, God, I promise you I'm never doing this again. David knows that that, there's no time and there's, that, there's no, uh, that, that is not going to work in this situation, nor is it gonna work in any situation because he knows that it's only God's mercy that can give him lasting 
repentance, to truly have a change of heart. He recognizes that God's mercy is the only thing that can change his heart that would lead him to be obedient moving forward from this time out. Without him, this is who David is. This is what he will continue to do. He knows he needs God's mercy. So in Psalm 51, verses one through six, we, we see David owning his sinfulness, acknowledging his only hope is not in himself, but outside of him, found in the mercy of God. And then in, in verses seven through 12, as we transition, we, we see uh, that God's mercy makes possible what, what should be impossible for sinners like David and I and you. Look at verses seven through 12. We'll read that text together. It says this, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. David, a rebel against the Lord, forsaking, forsaking, excuse me, forsaking his, his treasure, his only treasure in God, and instead of trading that for the treasure of the flesh of a woman. And further forsaking God, treasuring his reputation among the people, and finding a way to conceal his sin by killing her husband, Uriah, in cold blood. And now, after all of that, David has the audacity, the audacity to ask God to clean him, to blot out this record of sin as though it had never happened, to renew renew a, a loyalty in his heart to God to preserve the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, to restore the joy of the salvation of the Lord and to grant him a willingness from this point forward to fully obey the Lord. I mean, who does David think he is? Does he not realize what he had done? How could he have such boldness to ask for such ridiculous, impossible things for a sinner like him? Someone has to pay. Someone has to be punished. And that's the good news, is that someone was. And, and David is, is so aware of, of these truths. He knows what he deserves. He knows he does not deserve a full record to be cleaned, for his sin to be blotted out. He knows that. But what we see here is by faith, laying hold of God's mercy, And you and I must know this path as well. And so before we process through to verse 13 and beyond, I just wanna interject a few observations about the gospel that we see here in Psalm 51. And and we have to consider these things, and these are important. And the first one is this. This isn't so much a psalm about David finding the mercy of God as it is about the mercy of God finding David. And I want to illustrate it this way. Um, As we approach the noon hour, for some of us, we are experiencing some kind of experience that is pressing in. And for some of us, that experience is more intense than the others. Lunch is coming, if you're not following where I'm going. (laughs) 
we're experiencing this hunger. And for, at some times in our life, we've experienced this hunger, we've experienced this thirst, and it has been extremely intense. One could say, not enjoyable whatsoever. But we do, we can surmise and reconcile that the experience of being hungry, the experience of being thirsty, is a good thing because it leads us to the very thing we need, food and water. And so don't miss this. God's mercy begins in our lives before we even ask for it. Just like David, God's grace through the Holy Spirit began to open his eyes to his wretchedness, to his familiarity and his casualness before God, and caused him to be poor in spirit, left only to beg and to hope in the only thing worth hoping in, and that is the mercy of God. In Psalm 32, verses one through six, David himself says, and, and some connect this psalm to Psalm 51, though it's not abundantly clear. And so it's, it is true that we can apply this to all of our wrestlings with sin. But David says in, in verse one through six of Psalm 32, it says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no conceit. And then David says this, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. As hunger is the vehicle to our food, our sustenance, so is conviction harassment, awareness of the sin that plagues us. Those things are also the vehicle of God's mercy and a means of God's mercy for us to know the depths of his mercy. The second thing I want to add is this, David's sins were not swept under a rug to be left unpunished. To say, David, it's okay, let's just forget this happened, let's just move on. I mean, that, that kind of mercy is offensive. I mean, you would be offended if, if there were crimes committed against you and a, a bad judge simply said, you know what, criminal, you know, this was just a, a mistake. I know you did this, 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 and that, but there is evidence against you. It is well proven, but we're just gonna forget this happened. That would be offensive. That would be offensive. David was irresponsible as a king. He committed lust, murder, adultery. And the question has to be asked, where's the justice? Someone has to pay for these wrongs. And again, they were. God is just and he does punish sin. But he does so by means of the cross of Christ. Only because Christ took David's sins of lust adultery and murder and fully drank the cup of wrath for those sins, can a sinner such as David be so bold and beg and plead for the very things he does not deserve? It says in Romans chapter three, verse 21 through 26, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
Though the redemption, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And listen to this in 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God justifies, in other words, clears the record of sinful rebels by grace through faith without neglecting his justice because he pours out that justice on Jesus, his son. All the hate, all the wrath that is deserved for our sin is poured on Christ. And this and this alone is the grounds for David's hope and the mercy of God in Psalm 51. Nothing more and nothing less. As we see, as we close out this psalm, we start to see in verse 13 and 17 what we need to understand about the mercy of God is is that it is not a dead end. God's mercy always leads to something else. It's not over. God's mercy leads to other things, and we're gonna see that in the rest of the psalm. And And the first one we see in verse 13 is that those who are blessed by God's mercy are especially positioned to share God's mercy with others. David says in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And so in Psalm 51, verses one through 12, as we've already seen, David mourning over his rebellion, desperately longing for God's mercy because he knows that is his only hope. And as David comes to grips with the faithfulness of God and his mercy, the wheels start to turn in his head, start to turn in his mind knowing as he comes to grips with his sin and knowing his need for God's mercy, realizing he's not the only one who needs God's mercy. There are other individuals who need God's mercies, and so to teach transgressors and sinners the way of God is simply to warn them of the coming judgment upon all sin and to point to the rescuer in the midst of that judgment, that is Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And so those who have experienced the crushing blow of sin, who have knowledge the judgment they deserve, yet have been pardoned by God's mercy. They are positioned to help others learn the same. Who is better qualified to help the blind to see than the one who has been blind, but by the mercy of God now sees? Secondly, those who are blessed by God's mercy make their boast in God alone and worship him only. Make their boast in God alone and worship him only. David says in verse 14 and 15, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Blood guiltiness, that is taking of blood. Uriah is exactly what happened. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And then he says this, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Hitting rock bottom because of an awareness of sin and rebellion against God, yet experiencing the freedom of God's rescuing mercy should lead one to avoid boasting of any good or of any righteousness of their own. By God's mercy, David knows himself well and he knows there is nothing in himself worthy of praise. And so he longs to put the spotlight on God. This is what people who have experienced God's mercy should be led to do. And, and I believe oftentimes, including myself, sometimes I feel like we project ourselves as believers. We project ourselves as, as better than those who do not know the Lord. 
When in reality, what we are seeing very clearly this morning, the only difference between us and them is the mercy of God. Not because of anything we have done. We have absolutely nothing to boast in. And so may we humbly ask God to open our lips, as David does, that we may point to Jesus and not to ourselves. Thirdly, those who are blessed by God's mercy know there is nothing that can be done to improve upon the mercy of God. Whether it's good deeds or some kind of religious activity, look what he says in verse 16 and 17. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Once David came face to face with how ugly his heart was, he doesn't even flirt with the temptation to hopefully, somehow, to soothe God's displeasure with him by performing some kind of deed. Or I'm gonna try better, I'm gonna do better, I'm, I, God, I'm gonna, okay, I'm gonna get involved, I'm gonna do this now. David knows that there is nothing he can do to soothe the displeasure that we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 11. He knows that that's not possible. And so all he's left to do is to beg, to be humbled and to be broken. And it says here that, that that's what God wants. His worship of God was wrought with this brokenness, much like the prophet Isaiah that we read about when he says, woe is me. God's mercy, it exposes our sinful hearts so well that in humility we become convinced that God doesn't want our religious show. He just wants our heart. He just wants our heart. Finally, the fourth thing we see in verse 18 and 19, those who are blessed by God's mercy have a renewed concern for the people of God. He says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Yes, David is the king of Israel, but he knows he is first a fellow worshiper of God. He rightly desires that God's people would be blessed by him because he sees a significant connection between his own spiritual health to the spiritual health of the people of God. The ESV study Bible's commentary on this verse says this, each member, speaking of you and I here at Emmaus, each member is linked to others in a web of relationships and together they share in the life of God as it pulses through the whole body. Thus, each member contributes to or else detracts from the health of the whole. You and I are connected to one another. And, and if we are casual with one another, the church, then maybe we are casual with the Lord. And if we are casual with the Lord, then no doubt we will be casual with the people of God. Bottom line is, we need each other. Church, we, we need each other in this life in our wrestlings with sin and with our own depravity, knowing that our spiritual health Yes, hinges on the mercy of God, but by God's means of, of grace in our life, he involves other people in our life so that we'll be encouraged and nourished, and we are to reciprocate that with others 
here at Emmaus. So we must be concerned with one another just as David has. And so in conclusion, we have to ask ourselves some hard questions. And that is, have we become so casual with God that we've lost a sense of awe of him? His holiness. Or even his great act of mercy through the work of Jesus. Again, unfortunately for some believers in Christ, casualness creeps in to a degree that we possibly feel a sense of superiority simply because we've been forgiven. And, and when I say these things, I say them at myself before I say them to anyone. That, that maybe as we grow in the Lord, we forget, so to speak, the gospel. We, we think that we can prop ourselves up on our own two legs spiritually. Uh, the things that, that Owen has been preaching to us over the last few weeks uh, from the viewpoint of the churches, we get self-sufficient we lose our sense of neediness. Back in May, we recognized a group of students who graduated high school. And by graduating, we understand that to mean they, they move on. They transition, hopefully to bigger and better things never to return. That's the idea, anyway. But here's, here's the bottom truth, bottom line truth to that is, is as believers, we never graduate from the cross. We never get to a point in our walk with God to say, okay, God, I think I've got it now. I think I can handle this. We never mature enough in the Lord that we need him less. If anything, it's the opposite. His mercy positions us to see more and more and more and more and more every single day of what he saved us from, ourselves. His mercy is a comfort, but it's also something that keeps us awake and, and, and pulls us out of our casualness and pulls us out of our excessive comfort with God that we've lost some sense of awe of him and his holiness. And so the more we grow in the Lord, the more we should identify with David in Psalm 51 that we never get beyond Psalm 51, that we're gonna wake up one day and say, man, I'm so glad I don't struggle anymore. And, and maybe this morning you're even thinking, well, I can't really identify with David's sins, but you can identify with sin, correct? Then you can identify with David. We never move beyond this. We, we should always identify with David. The more we grow in the Lord, that should become more prevalent in our life and it should become more prevalent that we identify with Paul, as he says in Romans chapter seven, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And by faith, Paul, an awareness of how ugly his heart is, says in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. No doubt, Paul learned that boldness through David in Psalm 51. David didn't deserve a thing from God, but by faith, he laid hold of God's mercy. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? So we close. God, we come to you this morning, and in my heart, Lord, you know my heart. And Lord, you know that this message is not for anyone first before it's for me. 
God, you know how much grace and mercy I need from you. And I thank you for Jesus. That his grace is stronger than my sin. And Lord, you know that sometimes daily I even wrestle with that thought. But God, I thank you that your mercy is strong. We thank you for your cross, Lord. And God, my my heart burns with compassion for the casual this morning, for the self-sufficient and for the comfortable who have lost their sense of neediness with you. God, as you sent the prophet Nathan to be a means of mercy to David, would you be mercy to those individuals? Would you send mercy to them that they might awaken and see their need for you? But God, my heart also hurts for the broken and for the humbled. And like the tax collector in Luke 18, they can't even bring themselves to lift their eyes upward to heaven and they're begging for you to have mercy on their life. God, keep them from despair. Grant them a bold faith like David to hope in your mercy. Not through anything that they could do, but only through the work of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your mercy in our lives. Where would we be without it? Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us by your word this morning and that we would walk out of this place in freedom and with hope because of what your mercy has accomplished for us. In your name we pray, amen.